Well, thank you, Pastor Dan. Thanks, Pastor Rob, for the invite. I was out here before. I can't remember how long ago, probably over a year ago uh, now, but it's just a joy to be back with you all. Say what you want about stay-at-home orders and pandemics. Uh, if you give me coffee and breakfast sandwich and weather like this, I'll take it uh, just about every Sunday. So this is great. Uh, it is a joy to be here. Uh, it's been a joy to get to know Pastor Rob and his family, and uh, it's just great to be partners in ministry. Uh, we love the same things. We love to exalt Christ, and we love to see his people grow and become more like him. Uh, we love to see the lost saved, uh, and so it's just a joy uh, to be here, to be able to be a help uh, to you all, to fellowship with you all as well. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you could open up to Mark chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 11 to 35 in Mark chapter 8. You know, we often don't realize many times the implications of the things that we say. Um, you know, one time I came up to my wife and I told her that I'm going to remodel our guest bathroom. Now, I said that without realizing all of the implications that that would involve. I'm not particularly handy myself, and so this was quite a challenge for me. I didn't know that, you know, when I took off sort of the linoleum floor, that there'd be all these little staples holding this particle board on, and I'd have to figure out a way to kind of remove those or get rid of those somehow. Uh, I didn't realize that when, you know, I put in the new tile floor that it wouldn't be quite the same level as the floor was before, and so that when reinstalling things, that wouldn't quite go well. Uh, I didn't know that the new sink that I bought didn't quite fit exactly the same as the old sink I had, and that I'd have to learn how to kind of reroute some piping to make sure all of that works. And so though I said I'm going to remodel our guest bathroom, I really had no idea of the implications that that was going to involve. Or imagine this, imagine your, spa your wife comes to you, maybe if you're a husband, and she says to you, we're going to have a baby, right? You know that there's the statement, but you really have no idea all of the implications that are going to go along with having a child, especially if it's your first child. Well, the same is often true when we profess that Jesus is the Christ. There are certain things we understand about that phrase, Maybe we know that we have sin and that we need a Savior. Maybe just our life is at rock bottom and we need hope. Or maybe we just are, can't handle just the daily pressures of life and we know that we need help. There are certain things that we know when we say that Jesus is the Christ, but we really have, when we say that, no idea of all of the life-altering implications of the statement, Jesus is the Christ. Now, thankfully, though, we have a powerful Savior who every day of our life will open our eyes more and more to all of the implications of the fact that Jesus is the Christ. So let me pray, and then we'll uh, dive into Mark chapter 8. Lord, we do need every day to realize more and more what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. There are many things that come to our mind when we think of that phrase, and yet we know that we don't live in light of all of the implications of that statement. Lord, as we look at this text, we will see that we need to see Jesus as he truly is. And Lord, we need that every day, not just once so that we were sa would be saved, but every single day, because Lord, you say that you change us as we behold the glory of Christ, that as we see him, Day after day, we become more like him. And so every day, we need to see Jesus as he truly is. And so, Lord, would you do that today? Reveal to us again the glories of your Son, so that we might be changed. For those that don't know him, that they would be saved. And for those that do know him, that they would continually change day after day, more and more, into the image of Christ. Because, Lord, we want to glorify you. We want to glorify you not just in what we say, but we want to glorify you in how we live our lives. We want to live like you. We want to live like your son. So help us. Help us to see him clearly so that we would be like him. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you've ever read through the Gospel of Mark, it kind of breaks down really into two questions. Who is Jesus, and what does that mean for us? Right? That's the whole Gospel in a nutshell. Who is Jesus and what does that mean? 
if you look at the first half of Mark, everything has really been leading to this conversation that he's about to have with his disciples later on in this chapter. Jesus has been performing miracles. People, including the disciples, are just amazed at the things that Jesus would do, right? I mean, he's healing the sick. He's even raising the dead. Many people, including the disciples, are asking each other throughout the first half of this gospel, who is this man? Who can do the things that this man can do? Who can even say the things that this man says? And now, in Mark chapter 8, we get the answer to the question, who is Jesus? But not only do we get the answer to that question, we start to get the implications and leading into the second question that Mark wants to deal with. If he is who he says he is, what does that mean for you as his follower, as his disciple? So our great need, the title of this sermon is, Do You See Jesus as He Truly Is? First point, beware of not seeing Jesus as He truly is. Beware of not seeing Jesus as He truly is. Look at verses 11 to 13. It says, Then the Pharisees came out, and they began to dispute with Him, seeking from Him a sign from heaven, testing Him. But He sighed deeply in His spirit, and He said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them, and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. So we're going to see in these first several verses that we look at that there are all of these people, and they're all sort of seeing Jesus, but not really seeing Jesus. And there's different kinds of unbelief that are present in these first opening verses. And the first group that we meet is the Pharisees. And the reason they don't see Jesus as he truly is is because they refuse to see Jesus as he truly is, right? What do the Pharisees want in verse 11, right? They want a sign from heaven to say who Jesus is. Now, if I was Jesus, I might respond a little sarcastically. Like, oh, you want a sign. Okay. Um, How about casting out a demon? Would that be a good sign for you? Because I did that one already. Uh, what about healing sickness and disease, like a whole town? of like what, Whoever's sick, whoever has a disease, I, they can come to me and I'll heal them. Yeah, I did that one. Um, healing a paralyzed man, did that. Calm a storm, did that too. What about creating food for thousands of people from like just a few loaves of bread? It's like, I did that actually twice. You know, but you probably want like a really good sign. Like, what if... I could raise someone from the dead. Wait, I did that one. I did that also. But you wanted a sign from heaven. So you're probably thinking, maybe you want like a voice from heaven coming down saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well put. Wait, that happened too, right? So what's going on with the Pharisees? Why are they asking for a sign when they've been given tons of signs already? Well, the answer is at the end of verse 11. Why did they ask him for a sign at the end of verse 11? They wanted to test him. So they're asking for a sign is not a genuine desire for evidence so that they might believe in him. They're just looking for a way to discredit him. They're refusing to believe all the signs they've already seen, and now they're just looking for a way to just dismiss Jesus. And people are still like that today, right? They might ask for a sign. Oh God, if you would just show me this, then I would believe in you. But, you know, people refuse to believe the evidence that's all around them. And Jesus is saying, beware of refusing to see Jesus as he truly is. If you are someone who refuses to see Jesus as he truly is, despite all the evidence around you, You need to stop making excuses for your unbelief. Again, the Pharisees, it's not evidence. They're not looking for evidence so that they might believe. They're refusing to believe in spite of all the evidence that they have around them. If you're listening today, everything in you and around you testifies to the fact that there is a God. We're enjoying his wonderful creation right now. Everything in you testifies the fact that you know that you've sinned against this God. You even know that you deserve judgment for your sin. So what's the issue? The issue is you refuse to believe it, even though everything in you and around you testifies to it. 
And so you need to stop denying it. Stop refusing it. Stop suppressing it and believe it and repent of your sin and come to Christ because you know he's the only one who can pay for your sin and make things right between you and God. And so beware, like the Pharisees, beware of refusing to see Jesus as he truly is. Because it grieves Christ when you're like that, right? He sighs deeply in verse 12. He asks that question, why does this generation seek for a sign when they've seen all of these things? And then in verse 13, he leaves them. And this isn't just like, this is Jesus' travel plans, like, okay, he's going to leave here to go somewhere else. No, he's deliberately disengaging from those that refuse to believe who he is. And so beware of refusing to see Jesus as he truly is. But there are other kinds of unbelief, other kinds of blindness that we see in these verses. The next is that there's, in verses 14 and 15, there's a looking to things other than Jesus to satisfy, right? So the second kind of unbelief we have to beware of is beware of looking to anything other than Jesus. Look at verse 14. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So Jesus, I mean, again, grieved at the Pharisees' refusal to believe. He gives a warning to his disciples, right? Don't be like them. Take heed. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of the leaven of Herod. Watch out. Keep your eyes open. What is it that they need to beware of? He says, again, the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod. What's he talking about? I think he's talking about unbelief. Right? This little bit of unbelief about who he is that can begin to creep in and permeate everything else about your life. Now, we saw with the Pharisees that their unbelief was really a refusal to believe. But Jesus adds a second kind of unbelief when he says the leaven of Herod. So what does he mean when he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, right? Don't be like them. Don't refuse to believe. But also beware of the leaven of Herod. So sort of an interesting statement that Jesus makes here. And if you want to turn to Mark chapter 6, we see something about Herod in Mark chapter 6. So in Mark chapter 6, if you're familiar uh, with this gospel account, it relates to John the Baptist and Herod. And it says some kind of interesting things about Herod's appraisal of John the Baptist. If you look at verse 19, chapter 6, or look at verse uh, 17, right? So what's going on with Herod? For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herod marries his brother's wife, and John the Baptist finds out about that, and John the Baptist calls him out on that. Now, of course, Herod probably didn't like that. Herod's then wife really didn't like that. But look what it says in verse 19. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. Why? Verse 20, for Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. So Herod actually liked listening to John the Baptist. He thought he was a just and righteous person, and he enjoyed listening to him. So what happened? Well, You know, again, John the Baptist calls him out. And what does he do? Well, his wife arranges basically asking her husband to chop off the head of John the Baptist. Look what it says of of Herod's response in verse 26. It says, And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. So what's going on with 
Herod here? What's, why is Jesus saying, beware of the leaven of Herod? What he's saying is you need to beware of an unbelief that's born out of competing interests, right? That, you know, you would follow Jesus, except that there's these other things that it's going to cost you. And so as much as I want to, right, as much as I like John the Baptist, as much as I enjoy listening to him, as much as I know that he's a just and he's a righteous man, because of my wife, I'm willing to cut off his head. Jesus is saying we need to beware those kinds of thoughts. Thoughts like, well, I would follow Christ, but I don't want to give up this relationship. I mean, that's Herod, right? Or I would follow Christ, but I don't want to give up this lifestyle. That's the rich young ruler who Jesus is going to meet next chapter. Or I would follow Christ, but I have these areas of my life that I don't really want to change. Maybe sins that I enjoy. And I know following Christ means that I'd have to put those away, and I'm not really sure that I want to do that. Jesus is saying, beware of these kinds of thoughts. If there's anything that gives you pause about following Christ, about thinking he's worth following, you need to deal with it. Right? And Jesus says, beware of the leaven, right? Beware of even the smallest amount of thoughts like that. Why? Because they're going to infiltrate every area of your life. And so if there's anything in your life, even the smallest bit of unbelief that you wonder, like, is Jesus worth giving up this? You need to deal with it. You need to repent and call on Christ. And so like the Pharisees, beware of Jesus, refusing to see Jesus as he is. Like Herod, beware of an unbelief that's born out of a competing interest where you look to other things instead of Jesus. And then maybe the scariest one for us is the disciples in verses 16 to 21. Beware of seeing Jesus, but not really seeing Jesus. Look at verse 16. So after this dire warning, right? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of the leaven of Herod, verse 16. And they reasoned among themselves saying, it's because we have no bread, right? I mean, so they turn to each other in face of these dire warnings, and they're basically like, I think Jesus is upset that we didn't bring more bread. <laughs> it's like, what's going on? Look how Jesus responds, right? Verse 17, but Jesus, being aware of it, this conversation, says to them, why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And don't you remember... When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, 12. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said to him, seven. So he said to them, how is it you do not understand? This is scary, right? Because these are the disciples. They know everything about Jesus. They've been with him for three years. And yet that witness to him, seeing him right before their eyes, has not resulted in any real change in their life. They see Jesus, but they don't really see Jesus, right? I mean, look at his startling words that he says to them in 17. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Is your heart still hardened? I mean, who's he talking to? The disciples. He's not talking to outsiders, He's saying, you disciples who've seen all these things, are your hearts still hardened? He says, having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? He's quoting from Isaiah. Isaiah's talking about those outside. Those outside of the kingdom, they have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. And Jesus is asking the disciples, are you like them? You're seeing all these things. You're hearing all these things, and yet nothing's changing inside of you. I mean, Jesus is basically telling them the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod is it's fermenting in you and it's infiltrating every area of your life. And so Jesus, he's trying to help them to kind of make, start making these connections. So he asks them these questions. When I fed the thousands, how many baskets full did you pick up? Twelve. When I fed the thousands a second time, how many baskets full did you pick up? Seven. He's saying, come on. I mean, what do those events tell you about who I am? 
We need to be aware of not seeing Jesus as he truly is. We need to be aware of being like these disciples in this moment. There's a danger to knowing a lot about Jesus, but not having those things you know about him change you. I mean, they know the answers to the questions, right? I mean, if they're in Sunday school, how many baskets full did they pick at 12? How many baskets full? Seven. They're acing the test about Jesus, but they're failing the class of life about living in light of who Jesus is. How about you? Could you ace the test about Jesus, but then fail in the class of living a life that honors and glorifies him? I mean, the things you know about Christ should change you. I mean, every week you hear that Jesus reigns over all, and yet you flip out about what the government does to us and the state of the world that we're in. Every week you hear that Jesus is worth living for, and yet you'd rather spend most of your time just doing entertainment or video games or sports. Every week you hear that Jesus loves, forgives, and is patient with you, and you hold grudges against those who wrong you. Jesus says, beware of these things. Why? Because it means you don't really see him for who he is. So do you see Jesus as he truly is? Do the things you know about Jesus impact your life? If you know he's sovereign, are you trusting and even rejoicing in your life circumstances? Or are you anxious, fearful, and frustrated day after day? If you know that he's the Savior who came not to be served, but to serve, do you spend all of your time and energy on yourself or on others around you for the sake of Christ? Are you seeing Jesus as he truly is? Do the things you know about Christ impact you and change you? And so here we have the Pharisees who refuse to see Jesus as he truly is, and then you have the disciples who have literally been with Jesus amidst all of these signs, and they still don't understand who he truly is. And so really, what hope do we have of seeing Jesus as he truly is in a way that our lives begin to change? Well, praise the Lord that Jesus knows how to give sight to the blind. And that's exactly what he's going to do right now. Look at verses 22 to 26. Trust Jesus alone for true spiritual sight verse 22. Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town, nor tell anyone in the town. I mean, this by far has to be the strangest healing that Jesus has ever done, you know, in all of the Gospels, right? I mean, you have this blind man who's brought to Jesus, and then the first thing that Jesus does for him is he spits on his eyes, right? I mean, this guy's got to be thinking this is like a joke that his friends are playing on him. Oh, Jesus is here, you know, come this way. And then the first sound he hears is like someone like hawking a loogie and like spitting on their face, like very good. Yeah, guys, real, real nice. Yeah, Jesus is here, I'm sure. But in fact, Jesus is here. And the spit goes on his eyes. Jesus touches him. And then what happens? Well, the man says, well, I see, but I kind of see men like trees walking around. You know, I mean, Jesus, I don't want to seem ungrateful. I mean, I do see, and I couldn't see before, but I'm a little low-key disappointed here that, you know, I'm not seeing everything as clearly as I would like to see. And at this point, Jesus sort of looks like a bad magician, right? Like, is this your card? And it's like, no, it's close, but it's not, no, it's not it. And so what does Jesus do again? Take two. He puts his hands on his eyes, makes him look up, and then his sight is restored, and he gives him clear vision. Now, the question is, why would Jesus heal this way? I mean, was Jesus not fully relying on the Holy Spirit, right? The first healing, it didn't quite, you know, stick. Jesus was maybe a little tired, you know? I mean, the, the power of God wasn't coming right, you know, the same way that it should. It's like, no, you have to conclude that Jesus intentionally healed this person the way he did. 
He healed him in stages. What is he doing? Jesus is showing that he alone gives spiritual sight and that that spiritual sight often comes in stages where you see things, but you don't quite clearly see them the way that you need to. And this is really a picture of what Jesus is going to do with the disciples the rest of this gospel. He's going to be clearing their He's really acknowledging to them that he's been dealing with blind men this whole time. And they're seeing things, they're getting little glimpses of Jesus, yet their vision isn't completely clear. And that's what Jesus has ultimately come to do. Clear their vision so they see him as he truly is. And it's almost like he's healing this guy, staring at the disciples saying, this is you. This is you. You think you see things clearly, but you don't right? You think you've been healed, but you're, you're not quite making all the connections, and you need me to open your eyes. And that's exactly what he does. You need Jesus to open your eyes, because when you see him, everything changes. When you see him love, you want to love like him. When you see him serve, you want to serve like him. When you see him willing to give up his life for others, you become willing to give up your life for others. And it all starts with Jesus opening your eyes to see him as he truly is. Christ alone can give this spiritual sight. And so are there areas of your life that you know you need to see Jesus more clearly? He can clear your vision. He can clear your vision so that you're not always anxious if you call out to him. He can clear your vision so you don't continually fall to lust or other sins if you call out to him. He can clear your vision so that you could even love those that are difficult to love. And he alone can do that. So call on Christ for clear vision because he loves to heal and give people a clear vision of who he is. Lastly, in verses 27, really to the end of the chapter, not only do we need to see Jesus as he truly is, we also need to see the life-altering implications of who Jesus truly is. And that starts with seeing Jesus himself as he truly is. Look at verse 27. Now Jesus and his disciples went out of the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them, that they should not tell anyone about him. So again, see what kind of Christ Jesus truly is. He starts to have this conversation with the disciples. It's always good to ask a non-threatening question first if you really want to have a hard conversation with people. You know, so Jesus, he asked them, like, who do people say that I am, right? I mean, people love talking about other people, right? They don't want to talk about themselves, but they'll talk about others. And so they ask him, you know, who do people say that I am? Well, some John the Baptist, some Elijah, one of the prophets. You know, they think you're kind of an important guy. But really, Jesus is just setting them up for the more important question. Okay, so who do you say that I am? And this is the most important question that you face in this life. Who do you say Jesus is? And he's confronting the disciples, right? You have to make a decision in your heart. Who am I? You've seen me feed the thousands. You've seen me walk on water. You've seen me still the storm, heal the deaf, mute, and blind. You've even seen me raise the dead. Who am I? And Peter walks up and says, you are the Christ. And he nails it, right? Sunday school answer 101, who is Jesus? He is the Christ. But what we're going to see is that Peter's confession is a lot like the first healing with that blind guy. There, he sees it clearly, but not quite as clear as he thinks. We're going to see that when it comes to seeing Jesus for who he is, Peter sees him like a tree walking. Because what do you think Peter has in mind when he tells Jesus that he's the Christ? 
He's probably saying, you're the political conqueror, right? You're the king who's going to come. You're going to establish your kingdom. All our enemies are going to be squashed. You're going to reign forever, and we're going to reign with you. And Peter's right, but he doesn't quite see things the way that they're really going to play out. And so what does Jesus tell him in verse 30? Yeah, don't, go tell, any, don't tell anyone uh, that I'm the Christ because you really have no idea what it means for me to be the Christ. And so Jesus, Peter gives the right answer, but he has the wrong conclusion. And so Christ is going to correct that. Let's look at verse 31. So when he began to teach them, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. He spoke this word openly, but Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Jesus wants to give him a clear vision of what it means. It's true. He is the Christ, but Peter, you have no idea what that means. And so he starts to explain, what does it mean that I'm the Christ? Jesus says, if I'm the Christ, there's some divine necessities that have to happen. What does he say? The Christ must suffer, be rejected, be killed, and then rise again. He said these things must happen. It says in verse 32 that he spoke these things openly to him. He wasn't being like, you know, mystical or like kind of trying to give him some weird pick. No, it's like he said, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. That's what it means for me to be the Christ. If I am the Christ, then these things have to happen. But the amazing thing is, this is who the Christ is, that he is the one who's going to come who's willing to suffer, be rejected, and be killed for his people. The Christ is the suffering servant who would pay for the sins of his people. And that's what makes him glorious. Because he is the one who raises the dead, who heals the sick, who can feed the thousands, and yet he's the same one who's willing to suffer, be rejected, and be killed so that he might forgive the sins of his people. This is the heart of who Jesus is. This is the heart of what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. Jesus is the God who sacrificially serves his people, even by laying down his own life. It's the heart of who Jesus is. He's a God who sacrificially serves. Does he forgive your sin? Yes. Why? Because he's the God who sacrificially serves his people. Does he empower you to live this life? Yes. Why? At the heart of it, he's the God who sacrificially serves his people. Does he provide everything that you need? Yes. Why? Because he's a God who sacrificially serves his people. Does he walk with you through life's most difficult times? Yes. Why? Because he's the God who sacrificially serves his people. Right? Revelation 5, we're going to spend all eternity rejoicing over the fact, saying, worthy are you, why? Because you were slain. This is what it means to see Jesus clearly. To see him as the suffering servant who would even lay down his life for his people. And when you see him that way, when you see him clearly that way, it changes everything. But what about Peter? How does Peter respond to this glorious truth in verse 32? It says, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Now you've got to hand it to Peter. I mean, he's very conscientious, right? Like, Jesus, I don't want to embarrass you in front of the other disciples, so just come over here. But all this stuff you're saying, like suffering, rejection, it's like, that can't happen. That's not going to happen. That's not who you are. You're the Messiah, right? You're going to come. You're going to conquer. You're going to rule over everything. I don't know what Bible you've been reading, but that's the one I've been reading. That's what's going to happen. And how does, Pe- how does Christ then respond to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. 
I mean, he doesn't even say like, you're, you're thinking a little off. You know, you're, you're kind of thinking like Satan. No, he says, get behind me, Satan, right? I mean, he went from the head of the class, right answer, you're the Christ, to the principal's office now. He's being called Satan by Jesus. What's, why would Jesus say that? Well, to suggest that there's an alternate way for Jesus to be the Christ that doesn't involve suffering, rejection, and death is satanic. That's literally what Satan tempts Jesus with earlier in Christ's life, right? I'll give you everything you want. You want the honor of all the, king, all the nations. You want glory. You want all that. I can give that to you right now. Ignore the cross, no death, no suffering, no rejection. All you do, bow down to me, and I'll give you everything that you came for. That's what Peter's saying. And so Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting God's interests, but man's. And so Jesus is confronting Peter. Whose Christ do you really want? Do you want your version of Christ? Or do you want God's version of Christ? Man's Christ says you can have all the benefits of Christ without any suffering, rejection, pain, death, anything. Your life doesn't have to change at all. You can have Christ and nothing changes. Or do you want God's Christ? Christ that involves suffering, pain, rejection, and death, but also resurrection and glory at the end. Whose Christ do you want, your own or God's? This is the most important question that you will face in this life. And it's the question that Jesus goes on to address next. Look at verse 34. So after hearing the way that Peter's thinking, Jesus calls all the disciples, all the people that are around, he calls them to himself. He says to them in 34, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Right? Jesus wants there to be everyone to see this. Right? Everybody come around. This has just been a one-on-one conversation with Peter and Jesus up to this point right here. But no, everybody needs to hear, if you see me as I truly am, this is what it means. If anyone wishes to come after me, It means you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. If you accept the Christ that I am, according to God, suffering rejection, death, but then resurrection, this is what it looks like to live in light of that truth. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Make a decisive decision to give up your life. When he says deny yourself, he's not referring to, you know, saying no to dessert for a few weeks so that you can try to shed those holiday pounds. This is more than giving up TV. When he says deny yourself, he means give up a life centered on yourself. Refuse to be guided by your own interests. Surrender the control of your destiny to me. Before Christ, before we come to Christ, how do we think about our life? Well, it's my life, it's my goals, it's my accomplishments. Oftentimes, when we come to Christ, we still kind of think in those terms. How is Christ going to help my life? How is he going to help me accomplish my goals? How is he going to help me with my accomplishments? Right? It's sort of like this car, you know, that we're driving this car, and it's kind of a beat-down beat old car. We're happy for Jesus to come and sort of change a few things out in that car. You know, I need some new rims from Vallejo. Uh, I need some new tires, need a new radio, need whatever, right? I'm happy for Jesus to come and to change, but it's still my car. And this is more than Jesus take the wheel. This is, no, 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 Jesus, you have my whole life now, right? This isn't my car anymore. This is your car, and you do with it whatever you want. Because truly following Christ means we don't think in terms of my life, my goals, my accomplishments. It's his life, his goals, his accomplishments. That's what I live for now. Why? Because I've denied myself. I don't think in terms of my life anymore. And it's not sort of like this cold denial of who I No, It's actually I see Jesus for who he truly is. So for me to say I deny myself, I give up my life, it's not really a sacrifice. It's the only acceptable thing in light of knowing that there's a God who would sacrificially serve and give his life for my sins. 
So you deny yourself. Then he says, you need to take up your cross. This phrase, like deny yourself, it's not referring to having a tough boss at work or some other trial that it's your cross to bear. No, this is the acceptance of a death sentence for the sake of Jesus and the sake of others. And this would be a shocking statement to them because the cross hasn't happened yet, right? This is the first time in this gospel that Jesus is telling him that he's going to have to lay down his life. I mean, because before the cross, I mean, what do you think the disciples think following Jesus looks like or where is it going to go? Again, they're thinking, you know, he's the Christ. This is going to go to he's going to conquer. He's going to be ruling. What are the conversations the disciples are having around this point? Let me sit at your right hand. Let me sit at your left hand when you come in glory, right? And no, he's saying you need to take up your cross, I mean, it'd be akin to saying something like, you need to strap yourself to the electric chair. Again, what's the picture? Your life ends, and you're following Christ, and you're only about him. So he says, take up, deny yourself, take up your cross, and then follow me. And when he says, follow me, what do you think he's talking about? Follow him in what? In what he just said. Where's he going? Suffering, rejection, death. So not only do you completely renounce your life, you continually follow Jesus, and you follow Jesus even if it means suffering and death. And for pretty much all these disciples, that's exactly what it's going to mean. A life of sacrificial service. Because that's the life that he lived for you. And that's the life that you want to live for him. And again, you know the crazy thing is, as, as radical as these demands sound, it's actually the only things that make sense when you see Jesus as he truly is. When you see that he laid down his life for you, that your sins are forgiven, that you're going to enjoy eternity with God, the only response that makes sense is, yeah, my life over. I made a mess of my life. I don't need to live my life anymore. I want to live for Christ. I want to live for him. Verse 35 says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. If you seek your life, if you're still pursuing your life, your goals, your accomplishments, you're going to find your whole life frustrated and disappointing. And worse than that, at the end of your life, Jesus says, you will lose your life. But if you live for Christ and if you live for his gospel, you'll actually save your life. It's interesting that when Jesus says that whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, and then he adds, and the gospels will save it. So what does your life look like? It's not just that you're sort of living for the name of Christ in sort of a general way, but you're actually living for the gospel. You're living for the mission of Jesus as well as the name of Jesus. So what does that mean? Well, that means that you're, you're not seeking, again, your life, your success, your enjoyment. You're seeking Christ's name and the progress of his gospel. It means that Christ now isn't just a part of your life. You can't live your life and then pursue Christ and the gospel on the side. It means you wake up every morning with a singular purpose of living for him and living for his mission. And this changes your perspective, again, on everything. I mean, think about your marriage. Your marriage is not ultimately about your joy and your satisfaction anymore. It's about loving someone and wanting to see Christ's purposes accomplished in their life, even if they don't treat you well. Why? Because that's what Christ did for you. So every day you wake up with that purpose. What about parenting? Well, your primary task as a parent is not primarily just getting the kids through school, making them successful, or maybe just making them less irritating. No, your job is to see Christ's purposes accomplished in their life. I want to see the name of Christ exalted in their life and his gospel progress in their life. How about work? Your task every day is not primarily the success of your company or avoiding conflict with your coworkers. Your job is to see Christ honored in the work that you do and how you interact with others. 
you wake up with a new filter on all of life. All of life comes down to this question. Does this advance the cause of Christ and his gospel? Should I take this new job? Does it advance the cause of Christ and his gospel? Should I pursue this relationship? Does it advance the cause of Christ and his gospel? Should I move out of California to some other state? Does it advance the cause of Christ and his gospel? How should I spend my retirement? I don't know, but does it advance the cause of Christ and his gospel? How do we typically make these decisions? Well, this job pays more money, so I'm going to take it. I'm sick of liberal California, so I'm going to move somewhere else. We need to think like this. Does it advance the cause of Christ and his gospel? Sometimes that might mean taking a new job. Sometimes that might mean moving to a new state. But you're not doing it for a million other reasons that are just related to your life, your goals, your accomplishments. You're doing it for one reason. Does it advance the cause of Christ and his gospel? And again, the crazy thing is, when you live that way, when that's the one question you wake up trying to answer every single day, you actually experience life at its fullest and best. It might be that the frustration and depression you have in this life is precisely because you're still thinking in terms of my life. Why is my marriage so hard? Why is my job so difficult? Why do my kids drive me crazy? Because you're still seeking your life. And you're not meant to do that. You're meant to seek after Christ and his gospel. And if you would do that, you'd actually find a full and joyful life. Turn to Philippians 3, 5. Because this is exactly the mindset that Paul had in his life. Philippians 3, 5. This is basically Paul saying, I had it all, and I consider it all loss for the sake of Christ. Philippians 3, and about middle of verse 4. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more, right? And this is Paul saying, again, I had it all. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. I had it all. I had it everything. It was my life. I was pursuing everything in my life. I reached all my goals. I had all my earthly accomplishments. What does he say in verse 7? But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of what? Knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, I count them as garbage so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And what does Paul want with his life then? I want to know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, even being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I want to know Christ. I want to know, I want to live for Christ. Everything I want, I want to be about Christ, even if it means suffering, even if it means a death like his, because knowing Christ is of surpassing value. Every earthly accomplishment you could have, it's garbage compared to knowing Christ. You can have a righteousness from God, not through your works, but on the basis of faith, on the basis of what Christ has done for you. When you give up your life and live like this, you will not be disappointed. You'll find more joy in a life of denying yourself and taking up your cross than you ever would have pursuing every goal and interest that you have. And so the key question is, do you see Jesus as he truly is? Do you see him as glorious as he is? And if you do, does your life reflect it? Now, I know you're all in church right now, right? You can give me the right answers. How many baskets full? Twelve, seven. But Jesus wants more than the right answers. 
He wants your life to be a reflection of who he is. He wants you to live a life of sacrificial service for his sake and the sake of his gospel. And so does your life match what you know about Jesus? And I hope that, you know, whether you've been a Christian for one day or 50 years, like, of course, the answer to that question is no. My life does not, in maybe many ways, reflect all the things I know about Christ. But the beautiful thing is Christ can clear your vision every single day, so that every single day you're looking more and more like the Savior whom you love, and the Savior who you've seen is worth giving up your life to follow. And so may Christ give us a clear vision to see him as he truly is and to live for him as we truly should. Let's pray. Lord, we are just in awe again of Christ, that he would be willing to suffer and be rejected and die for our sake, that our sins could be forgiven, that your righteous standards could be met, not through us, not through our works, but through his perfect life given up in place of us. But we also rejoice knowing that he didn't stay dead and that he has, in fact, raised from the dead. He seated with you in glory, and we look forward to being risen with him one day. But Lord, as we continue to live this life, we pray that you'd give us a clear vision of Christ every single day. Help us to seek Christ every single day, to wake up every morning wanting to see him again for who he truly is, because we know that when we see him, we want to live like him. And Lord, we confess that there's been so many distractions over these last several months, uh, so many different ways for our eyes to get off of Christ and onto legitimate difficult circumstances and hard life situations, uh, different ways that obviously this world does not reflect your goals and your purposes and your uh, desires. But Lord, even in the midst of all those things, we still need to get our eyes focused again on Christ to see him as he truly is, and that'll help us to live like him in this world. And so, Lord, we pray that you give us, refresh us with this sight of Christ again, that we would see him as the God who sacrificially serves, and that we'd want to serve like him. Lord, what an amazing thing that he didn't come to be served, even though he should have been served, but he came to serve. So may we live like him. May we live for his sake and his gospels, Strengthen us to do that. Give us the great joy that comes along with doing that. Help us to believe that there's more joy in doing that than living for ourselves. In Christ's name, amen.